0: Welcome to Give Methods a Chance. In this episode, we are joined by Seamus Kahn, Professor in and Chair of the Sociology Department at Columbia University. Seamus discusses his approach to teaching the sociological canon, the importance of focusing on the moments of racist and colonialist thought as central to, rather than despite of, the core theories, and the value of merging the learning of methods and theory. Hi, Seamus. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. As any good interviewer knows, when you're talking to someone who is in the midst of conducting exciting research, who's well-respected in the field, who has good ideas to share, the best thing to do is to make it as much as possible about yourself. (laughs) So with that in mind, whenever I teach social theory, I have these two competing tensions. The first tension is just to teach the canon. And when it comes to sociology, the canon consists of people who are predominantly dead. Well, now, not at the time of writing. Um, So they're predominantly dead, predominantly white, predominantly consist of men, and for the most part, all come from the exact same geographic region. Simultaneously, I hold this desire to diversify my syllabus and to expose students to ideas and theories from people who do not fit that pattern that I described before, or even ideas from the last 40, 50 years. So I think this reveals something about The discipline as a whole or at least the way we teach theory and so my first question is why do i need to hold on to that traditional canon and if the answer is that i do need to hold on to that canon who does it actually serve
1: So I think one of the explanations for why we have a canon is that it's helpful for any discipline to have uh, common conversations so that across different ways in which people are working, there's something that sort of centers us. And unlike other disciplines, for example, economics, which uh, have kind of a core set of principles that they tend to use as a sort of heuristic to understand things and that allows them to then sort of have a shared conversation. Sociology doesn't really have that. And I think that has been part of the justification for. Or a canon. You know, my views on this, I guess they evolve. I've been teaching theory now for 13 years at Columbia. And where I'm at right now, I think, is that I still teach a range of canonical texts, but I teach them in ways that don't gloss over the sets of Sort of things that they ignore, or rather don't ignore the sets of things that they don't ignore, but that we pretend they don't talk about. So let me give just like two quick examples of that. Weber has a tremendous amount of racist things, he says, about Chinese people. And, you know, this was sort of shocking to me. When I first read it, because nobody had ever pointed this out to me, but you know, Weber has these quotes where he says, like, even the simple Chinaman. And I think the first thing that we can do it with the canon is actually to highlight these moments. And the second thing, time that I realized this, I, I begin teaching theory with social contract theory. And so I teach Hobbes, Locke, and Rousseau. And in Hobbes' famous chapter on life being nasty, cruel, brutish, and short, he has a passage that's just after that that I spend as much time on, if not more, than the nasty, cruel, brutish, and short, which is about Native Americans. And in it, what what sort of comes to the fore is that all of these social contract theorists are able to conceptualize what man is like uh, in a state of nature through in- colonial encounters. So basically, colonialism produces this context of fantasy among a range of European thinkers about what man without society is like. And they begin to draw on this again and again. And so I tend to like raise up those conversations rather than, as it was taught for me, kind of blanket over them and talk about how, you know, the fundamental concepts of social contract theory, which are really central to democracy and social theorization, are sort of predicated on colonial encounters and colonial fantasies.
0: Is this your approach for both undergraduate and graduate students?
1: I definitely do this with undergraduates. So I, I always, I, I begin teaching theory with Hobbes, and I, I think this is like, they're probably strange for a lot of sociologists, but um, one, I actually love reading Hobbes. I think it's super interesting because it begins with concepts of equality that are nothing like how we think about equality. Hobbes' argument of quality is that everybody could kill anybody else, and so that makes us equal, which is not generally how we think about it. But I think undergraduates actually, you know, in being a little less cooked than graduate students and having less preconception about sort of what theory is, are actually more open to this um, and hungrier for it. One of the challenges in teaching graduate students is the push to professionalization within graduate programs, where there is an emphasis on critical thinking, but there's also an emphasis on like, how do I publish to get a job? And I think that some of the challenges in teaching in general today within graduate programs is that you know the, the, the restructuring of the academy in such a way that there's so much sort of temporary contingent and um, uncertain work situations for so many people has a conservative consequence for the ways in which graduate students look for and to ideas.
0: Unfortunately, that feels or sounds very familiar as someone who has not been out of grad school that long. So yeah, you're learning to cite the right people and engage with the right arguments, but you don't have that freedom to really explore the ideas fully. Exactly.
1: And so I think an analysis of what's happening pedagogically has to include a structural analysis of the transformation of the conditions of work for graduate students today and how You know, there is this push towards getting a top tier journal publication, but as we all know, getting a top tier journal publication means running the gauntlet of the previous people who are often very committed to protecting their own ideas and influence over the discipline. And so the consequence of that can be, I think, fundamentally conservative on on how knowledge works.
0: Thinking a bit more about your approach to teaching theory, what I'm wondering, and this is from my own experience as well, is once you work through the reading, and it could be be Weber, it could be Durkheim, it could be Marx, it could be Hobbes, and uh, you explain, well, these ideas that are sexist or racist or colonialist, how not only are they a product of the time that they're writing, but they're actually central to the theory that's being built— what do you tell the undergraduate who says, okay, well, then I'm going to close the book. Why am I going to keep reading this person who puts forth these ideas that are not only outdated, but are harmful or, or dangerous or offensive? Um, how, do you, how do you not have that be the ending point?
1: One way that I do this is also to do it with Du Bois. So, you know, if you read Philadelphia Negro, for example, Du Bois is incredibly dismissive of Southern blacks. I mean, he, he has a you know sociological and sort of ecological argument about why it is that Southern blacks are in comparatively low standing um, relative to those of Northern origin. But as you read through that, it's, there, there are passages that are really kind of cringeworthy. It, it doesn't mean that we ignore Du Bois. It means that we, we think seriously about this. Um, and engage with it. The second way that I deal with it is actually in in the last three years, I've redesigned how Columbia teaches theory and uh, it's now a co-taught course. So Peter Bierman and I have co-taught this course together a while now. And we co-teach both theory and what we call designs or what would typically be called method. And so one way that we've been able to kind of have these conversations relative to what's happening in the present is by bringing the present in and not thinking about theory texts as conceptual texts, but often, you know, articulating them as empirical texts and in co-teaching it with design, sort of putting them in conversation with the sets of things that are happening within our methodological course. And, you know, this sort of like changes a little bit of the terrain of the conversation so that rather than think about Marx or Weber or Durkheim or Du Bois or um, you know Hannah Arendt as people who had ideas, we think about them as people who designed studies and through those studies generated abstractions and that those abstractions are useful or not in part contingent upon the study design and so it pivots the conversation a little bit so that as we're thinking about like the texts we're thinking about them not just on the highly abstract level of the idea but instead in terms of how the ideas emerged from the ways in which people gathered data and there are always problems with that sort of thing but sort of elucidating those problems um, becomes sort of a central project um, collectively so, c- because it's always easier to see problems in other people's work compared to your own and that training ends up being super helpful.
0: This also seems more honest to what a theory actually is because one of the things I've noticed is that we've moved from teaching theories as ways of understanding the world that can be improved to here is the collection of great ideas. Yeah, I think
1: that's right. I mean, I went to the University of Wisconsin, and at the time Chaz Kamek, uh was the theory professor there, and he was just incredible. I mean, just one of the best lecturers I've ever had in my life. But Chaz sort of taught theory as intellectual history, and that was very fruitful for me intellectually, but as it turns out, it's not at all how I like to teach or talk about. Instead, I I want to talk about it as a much more living thing where we can learn from designs of projects we can see the weaknesses i mean if you read the protestant ethic for example relative to research design it's actually like a really weak text uh and it's interesting to talk about that to like have a conversation with students about how this sort of like study that's based in a you know among other things like a a pretty loose reading of benjamin franklin's autobiography that doesn't even like think seriously about that autobiography as a performative object but actually treats it like it's actually how franklin thought. you know you sort of see see some of the tremendous empirical weaknesses of that text. And It leads to, I think, super fruitful discussions with, in this case, particularly graduate students about the relationship between design and claims and why it is that certain things uh, have this kind of like power um, beyond what you would anticipate given the ways in which the study was designed.
0: This is incredibly useful for thinking about the first pressure that I feel about teaching those core sociological figures and what we actually do when we're in the classroom engaging with those readings. But what about the second pressure? other desire that I have is to expand the people that we do read and expand the perspective that students are exposed to. But if we're doing this kind of deep reading, doesn't that necessarily mean that we get through less and are exposed to less? Or is that is that simply the solution that we go deep with a few of those and we teach how to read, we treat it like a theory, we think about the weaknesses, and we we don't get to as many people?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think there's different kinds of solutions to this that I've sort of experimented with along the way. I mean, When you're teaching Durkheim, for example, there may be impulse to teach, you know, you want to teach the rules of the sociological method because you want to introduce people to the idea of a social fact. And I think, you know, the discussion of crime in that book as a normal phenomenon is just really kind of one of the most interesting and incredible things. It's always eye-opening to both undergraduates and graduate students. But then you think, oh, I've got to teach suicide. I've got to teach the division of labor. I have to teach some of elementary forms. And suddenly, you know, you've taken up four to five weeks of a course And how is it that you have space for other things? And the way that I balance this is to do, you know, very close readings of some texts and not so close readings of other ones. So in the opening of teaching the class, I kind of try to train people how to read. And so the first class that I teach, I I keep talking about Hobbes, I I teach Hobbes, and we only we read out loud one chapter of Hobbes that is four pages long, and it usually takes us two hours to get through. And the aim of that exercise is to kind of collectively do a very close reading of a text, and then we'll so st- talk you'll about. You'll
0: stop along the way, so you'll read a paragraph and then figure out what it means, and then keep going.
1: Exactly. Say at the very beginning, like we're going to go around the room. Each of us is going to read a paragraph out loud. Some people are less comfortable with this, especially in undergraduate courses, but also in graduate courses to, to know that they have to like read a paragraph out loud. And so doing it at the beginning, I sort of point to each student and I say, like, I will do the first paragraph. You will do the second. You will do the third. And so that gives some of them time to skim the thing that they'll be reading out loud. But then we read it out loud and I say, like, what is this paragraph saying? And I, I pointed to this earlier, like the, the opening of the nasty, cruel, brutish and short uh, chapter begins with humans are fundamentally equal. And so, you know, if you ask students, what is he saying? He's saying like, well, humans are fundamentally equal. And I say, like, what does he mean by equality? And the answer is usually like, oh, we're the same. And I was like, well, what's evidence that we're the same? And people kind of get caught up because it's very easy to read a text like that. And we know or we think we know what equality means and we apply it And so that sort of close reading unsettles our presumption about what equality is, at least in terms of how it applies to Hobbes. And it shows the importance of making sure that you don't apply your own conceptualizations of something like equality to another thinker. And then other times we fly through Marx in a class where we're covering like multiple texts. And combining sort of close readings with surveys is super important. You know, the other thing that I've done as chair, and we're actually just finishing this up right now, is a syllabus on it. And so, If we think about theory as something that's taught in a class, then there's a huge responsibility to cover lots of things in that class. But if we think about theory as something that's done across every single class, because it happens in conversation with um, method or design, and so every class... to different degrees has to deal with these things. We sort of like open ourselves up to the possibility that, you know, that these things are going to be covered elsewhere. And so the idea of a syllabus audit in our department right now is to just come up with a like a spreadsheet of what is being taught in every single class in our department so that we can look and see like are we teaching the strength of weak ties five times? And if we are Maybe we don't need to do that. Like maybe we don't need to teach it across five classes, and that other things can be brought in to classes to give people who move through our graduate or undergraduate curriculum a broader introduction to the topic. And so that is the other way in which we're sort of thinking about having this happen right now. So that if you know I don't spend a lot of time on Marx in the theory class, it doesn't mean that Columbia graduates don't get an introduction to Marx. It just means. That as a faculty, we think holistically about the education and we we sort of look and see like, wow, if if, if nobody's reading Class Status Party from Weber in, in across all the classes, like maybe I want to do this in my course on inequality or in my course on political sociology in, in a way that makes sure that, that people get the introduction across areas. And by doing that, then it opens up the capacity in the theory course to teach Pat Hill Collins or to teach uh, other sets of things with the knowledge that the introduction will come elsewhere.
0: But how much time do you spend setting up the theorist? And the reason I ask this is I've taken the approach of before I get into any theorist, I always give a little bit of their life history. And I'm hoping that that makes it less of this objective floating head that is just speaking truth. And we can think about how all ideas arise from a certain time. But I sometimes worry that instead of accomplishing that, I'm actually over-focusing on the individual and almost over-romanticizing this person. So I'm wondering how much does that time period matter or is it really just about getting into the text?
1: I mean, it's super interesting because I my disposition is to spend a decent amount of time on the time period and on the theorists. and it's it's partially that students actually like it. like they, you know they it, it it helps humanize the person, help get a sense of them. And so one of the things that we often don't teach with Durkheim, for example, is his engagement with socialism. and I think that that's actually super interesting, and one of the things that I always do when introducing Weber is talk about his mental health issues and you know his lifelong struggles with mental health and how this inhibited his capacity to work in the academy and other kinds of things. I mean, it makes. I think the theory is somewhat more relatable. It makes students think like, well, you know, my, some of my own mental health challenges. Like maybe I can become Knox Faber. Uh, that these things are possible within within our discipline. But as I've been co-teaching the course, it's interesting. Like uh, Peter Bierman has. Almost no interest in this. So he like really wants to kind of just talk about the text. And part of the tension that I have with the introduction increasingly is the degree to which students sort of play, especially in the graduate program, an erudition game as a way of symbolic domination. So I kind of all but ban references to other texts that we're not reading in our discussions uh, because those are rarely like fruitful for the discussion rarely actually add much and they have a real exclusionary uh consequence Mm -hmm. because you know people who've been if you've gone to say harvard through the social studies program and you kind of have been introduced to all of these concepts in relationship to one another and you can talk about durkheim's relationship to Comte and like this emergence of this moment in france at that time of a very kind of empirical scientific Mm -hmm. orientation like for some student, it helps them ground the ideas and feel really smart. But for like the seven other people in the class, it makes them feel like they don't belong in graduate school. So some of my concerns about bringing lots of things in as a teacher have to do with trying to actually stamp out that form of um, one upsmanship and as I called it earlier, sort of symbolic exclusion on the part of uh, some students, which I don't think is always nefarious. I think it's, you know, but but it has real consequences for the dynamics of the classroom. And so increasingly, I kind of teach in such a way that it's all there is, is the text. It's just the text. And let's just engage on the level of the text. I think that things are lost because of that. But I think that in the long run, the benefits for classroom dynamics often help make up for that.
0: Final question. It might be kind of obvious based on the way you've taught about teaching the course. But one of the other trends I've noticed in teaching social theory is more and more readers come out where the excerpts are getting shorter and the summaries are getting longer. Um, and you see some sociologists arguing that, you know, reading primary text actually doesn't matter. Instead, let's just teach these key principles or key ideas. And you can get through it a lot faster, you can get through more, makes more sense. And then you can get to contemporary uses of those ideas. Why is it so fundamentally important? And it seems like it is to you. And you can correct me if I'm misreading. But why is it so important for students to delve into those 10 pages from Jerkheim or work through a chapter from Weber?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't use readers. I don't use excerpts. And I pretty adamant about this. And I've even worked on readers. I mean, my first job in graduate school was to work with the person who would become my advisor, Mustafa Emmerbeyer, on this Blackwell Durkheim reader, which was, it's actually a super interesting text. It's, you know, short excerpts from uh, Durkheim, and then alongside it are a series of short excerpts of contemporary readings. And the purpose of that Blackwell series is to try and sort of make contemporary the, the texts. But for me, the project of of teaching theory and reading theory is learning how ideas go together and being able to construct analytically sound arguments. And it is very difficult to do that if you sort of cut them up uh, or if you remove parts of it and it's just the introduction to the basic concept. You know, as an example there are multiple conceptualizations of class in bourdieu and if we just teach class as like one concept so that for marx it's a position in the relations of production and weber it's your position within market relations and for you know bourdieu it's something else you know maybe bringing in a, a cultural lens to class dynamics you miss a lot. And it's actually important to show sometimes the uh, analytic sloppiness of the theorists or the inconsistencies so that the texts aren't these intimidating objects of brilliance or genius that we can't touch, but instead that we think about the texts as things that humans wrote, humans like (laughs) you and me, and uh, that we can begin to sort of dissect their construction. So one of the main uh, exercises I have almost every single graduate student I work with do is uh, to work on a paper outlines. But paper outlines that don't begin before a paper is written, but actually after. So the project is to like do a reverse outline of a paper after you've written it so that you can see its basic structure. But the capacity to do that, the capacity to sort of like construct the basic architecture of an argument, from my perspective, can only really come if we do a close reading of that argument. And so for me, I'd rather read less and do a little bit more of that. You know, I, I also teach here at Columbia in the core curriculum, which is basically political thought from Plato through Foucault, reading things like religious texts and all kinds of other things in between. And we have all this required reading that's required by the university. And I do about half of it because I just think it's, it's like too much. Much reading um, and we're trying to cover too much too thinly. And I'd rather not do that. I guess I'll say one final thing. You know, when I was talking about that syllabus audit, one of the ways I think about this is we don't all have to do this the same way in any department. So if I have a colleague who wants to cover huge swaths of material and assign a ton of reading and, you know, kind of go over it in not as sort of detailed a way as I do, I think that's great. I'm really happy for them to do that. And students should be exposed to multiple different ways of learning and and I think it's important to think of ourselves as part of a community that's producing a way of learning for students that has many opportunities to learn differently, to be introduced to different ways of thinking, and through that to introduce them to sort of an enormously wide range of texts.
0: That's a, I think that's a wonderful place to end. So thank you for making time to talk. I, I appreciate the conversation. Yeah, thanks so much for having me and for doing this podcast. Appreciation goes to Jeffrey Gilbert for providing our theme music undergraduate sociologists Beth Heberger, Alicia Rios, and Simone Graham for their help with the project, and most importantly, on behalf of me, Kyle Green, thank you for giving theory a chance.